Hello there, and welcome to tonight's episode of Down to Sleep, the podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get a good night's rest. Tonight, a reading of The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. Thank you for joining me. If you'd like to get even more readings, be able to give your opinion on the podcast, get in touch with me and more, join me on Patreon at patreon.com slash down to sleep. There is also a YouTube channel if you'd like to get more readings for free. On there, I do a lot of the versions that have the rain sounds in the background. You can find all of the links that you need in the info for this episode, or just go to downtosleeppodcast.com. But wherever you are in the world, let's tuck you in. Take a nice deep breath for me. And let's get down to sleep. The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett But they were obliged to wait more than a week, because first there came some very windy days, and then Colin was threatened with a cold, which two things happening one after the other would no doubt have thrown him into a rage, but that there was so much careful and mysterious planning to do and almost every day Dickon came in, if only for a few minutes, to talk about what was happening on the moor, and in the lanes and hedges, and on the borders of streams. The things he had to tell about otters and badgers and water rats' houses, not to mention birds' nests and field mice in their burrows, were enough to make you almost tremble with excitement when you heard all of those intimate details from an animal charmer, and realised with what thrilling eagerness and anxiety the whole busy underworld was working. "'They're same as us,' said Dickon. "'Only they have to build their homes every year, and it keeps them so busy they fair scuffle to get them done.' The most absorbing thing, however, was the preparations to be made before Colin could be transported with sufficient secrecy to the garden. No one must see the chair carriage and Dickon and Mary after they turned a certain corner of the shrubbery and entered upon the walk outside the ivied walls. As each day passed, Colin had become more and more fixed in his feeling that the mystery surrounding the garden was one of its greatest charms. Nothing must spoil that. No one must ever suspect that they had a secret. People must think that he was simply going out with Mary and Dickon because he liked them and did not object to their looking at him. They had long and quite delightful talks about their route. They would go up this path and down that one and cross the other and go round among the fountain flower-beds, as if they were looking at the bedding-out plants the head gardener, Mr. Roach, had been having arranged. That would seem such a rational thing to do that no one would think it at all mysterious. They would turn into the shrubbery walks, and lose themselves until they came to the long walls. It was almost as serious and elaborately thought out as the plans of march made by great generals in time of war. Rumours of the new and curious things which were occurring in the invalid's apartment had of course filtered through the servants' hall, into the stable-yards and out among the gardeners. But notwithstanding this, Mr. Roach was startled one day when he received orders 
from Master Collins' room to the effect that he must report himself in the apartment no outsider had ever seen. The invalid himself desired to speak to him. Well, well, he said to himself as he hurriedly changed his coat. What's to do now? His Royal Highness, that wasn't to be looked at, calling up a man he's never set eyes on. Mr. Roach was not without curiosity. He had never caught even a glimpse of the boy, and had heard a dozen exaggerated stories about his uncanny looks and ways and his insane tempers. The thing he had heard oftenest was that he might die at any moment, and there had been numerous fanciful descriptions of a humped back and helpless limbs given by people who had never seen him. "'Things are changing in this house, Mr. Roach,' said Mrs. Medlock. She led him up the back staircase to the corridor, onto which opened the hitherto mysterious chamber. "'Let's hope they're changing for the better, Mrs. Medlock,' he answered. "'They couldn't well change for the worse,' she continued. "'And queer as it all is, there's them as finds their duties made a lot easier to stand up under.' "'Don't you be surprised, Mr. Roach, if you find yourself in the middle of a menagerie, "'Martha Sowerby's Dickon, more at home than you or me could ever be.' "'There really was a sort of magic about Dickon, as Mary always privately believed. "'When Mr. Roach heard his name, he smiled quite leniently. "'He'd be at home in Buckingham Palace or at the bottom of coal mine, he said. "'And yet it's not impudence, either. He's just—' He's just fine, is that lad. It was perhaps well he had been prepared, or he might have been startled. When the bedroom door was opened, a large crow, which seemed quite at home perched on the high back of a carven chair, announced the entrance of a visitor by saying, Caw, caw, quite loudly. In spite of Mrs. Medlock's warning, Mr. Roach only just escaped being sufficiently undignified to jump backward. The young Raja was neither in bed nor on his sofa. He was sitting in an armchair, and a young lamb was standing by him shaking its tail in feeding lamb fashion, as Dickon knelt giving it milk from its bottle. A squirrel was perched on Dickon's bent back, attentively nibbling a nut. The little girl from India was sitting on a big footstool, looking on. "'Here is Mr. Roach, Master Colin,' said Mrs. Medlock. The young Raja turned and looked his servitor over. At least that was what the head gardener felt happened. "'Oh, you are Roach, are you?' he said. "'I sent for you to give you some very important orders.' "'Very good, sir,' answered Roach, wondering if he was to receive instructions to fell all the oaks in the park or to transform the orchards into water gardens. "'I'm going out in my chair this afternoon,' said Colin. "'If the fresh air agrees with me, I may go out every day. "'When I go, none of the gardeners are to be anywhere near the long walk by the garden walls. "'No one is to be there. "'I shall go out about two o'clock,' and everyone must keep away until I send word that they may go back to their work. Very good, sir, 
replied Mr. Roach, much relieved to hear that the oaks might remain, and that the orchards were safe. Mary, said Colin, turning to her, what's that thing you say in India when you finish talking and you want people to go? You say you have my permission to go, answered Mary. The Raja waved his hand. You have my permission to go, Roach, he said. But remember, this is very important. Car, car, remarked the crow hoarsely, but not impolitely. Very good, sir. Thank you, sir, said Mr. Roach. And Mrs. Medlock took him out of the room. Outside in the corridor, being a rather good-natured man, he smiled until he almost laughed. My word, he said. He's got a fine lordly way with him, isn't he? You'd think he was a whole royal family rolled into one. Prince consort and all. Hey, protested Mrs. Medlock. We've had to let him trample all over every one of us ever since he had feet. And he thinks that's what folks are born for. Perhaps he'll grow out of it if he lives, suggested Mr. Roach. Well, there's one thing that's pretty sure, said Mrs. Medlock. If he does live and that Indian child stays here, I'll warrant she teaches him that the whole orange does not belong to him, as Susan Sowerby says. And he'll be likely to find out the size of his own quarter. Inside the room, Colin was leaning back on his cushions. It's all safe now, he said. And this afternoon I shall see it. This afternoon I shall be in it. Dickon went back to the garden with his creatures, and Mary stayed with Colin. She did not think he looked tired, but he was very quiet before their lunch came and he was quiet while they were eating it. She wondered why, and asked him about it. "'What big eyes you've got, Colin,' she said. "'When you're thinking, they get as big as saucers. "'What are you thinking about now?' "'I can't help thinking about what it will look like,' he answered. "'The garden?' asked Mary. "'The springtime,' he said. I was thinking that I've really never seen it before. I scarcely ever went out, and when I did go, I never looked at it. I didn't even think about it. I never saw it in India because there wasn't any, said Mary. Shut in and morbid as his life had been, Colin had more imagination than she had, and at least he had spent a good deal of time looking at wonderful books and pictures. That morning when you ran in and said, It's come, it's come, you made me feel quite queer. It sounded as if things were coming with a great procession and big bursts and wafts of music. I have a picture like it in one of my books. Crowds of lovely people and children with garlands and branches with blossoms on them. Everyone laughing, dancing, crowding and playing on pipes. That was why I said, perhaps we shall hear golden trumpets and told you to throw open the window. How funny, said Mary. It's really just what it feels like. And if all the flowers and leaves and green things and birds and wild creatures danced past at once, 
what a crowd it would be. I'm sure they'd dance and sing and flute, and that would be wafts of music. They both laughed, but it was not because the idea was laughable, but because they both so liked it. A little later, the nurse made Colin ready. She noticed that instead of lying like a log while his clothes were put on, he sat up and made some efforts to help himself. He talked and laughed with Mary all the time. "'This is one of his good days, sir,' she said to Dr. Craven, who dropped in to inspect him. "'He's in such good spirits that it makes him stronger.' "'I'll call in again later in the afternoon, after he's come in,' said Dr. Craven. "'I must see how the going out agrees with him.' "'I wish,' in a very low voice, he said, "'that he would let you go with him.' "'I'd rather give up the case this moment, sir, "'than even stay here while it's suggested,' "'answered the nurse with sudden firmness.' "'I hadn't really decided to suggest it,' said the doctor with slight nervousness. "'We'll try the experiment. "'Dickon's a lad I'd trust with a newborn child.' "'The strongest footman in the house carried Colin downstairs "'and put him in his wheeled chair, near which Dickon waited outside. "'After the manservant had arranged his rugs and cushions, "'the Rajah waved his hand to him.' and to the nurse. "'You have my permission to go,' he said, and they both disappeared quickly, and it must be confessed giggled when they were safely inside the house. Dickon began to push the wheeled chair slowly and steadily. Mistress Mary walked beside it, and Colin leaned back and lifted his face to the sky. The arch of it looked very high, and the small snowy clouds seemed like white birds floating on outspread wings below its crystal blueness. The wind swept in soft, big breaths down from the moor. It was strange with a wild, clear-scented sweetness. Colin kept lifting his thin chest to draw it in. His big eyes looked as if it were they which were listening listening instead of his ears. "'There are so many sounds of singing and humming and calling out,' he said. "'What is that scent the puffs of wind bring?' "'It's gorse on the moor that's opening out,' answered Dickon. "'Hey, the bees are at it wonderful today.' Not a human creature was to be caught sight of in the paths they took. In fact, every gardener or gardener's lad had been witched away. They wound in and out among the shrubbery and out and round the fountain beds, following their carefully planned route for the mere mysterious pleasure of it. But when at last they turned into the long walk by the ivied walls, the excited sense of an approaching thrill made them, for some curious reason, speak in whispers. This is it, breathed Mary. This is where I used to walk up and down and wonder and wonder. Is it, cried Colin, and his eyes began to search the ivy with eager curiousness. 
But I can see nothing, he whispered. There is no door. That's what I thought, said Mary. Then there was a lovely breathless silence, and the chair wheeled on. That's the garden where Ben Weatherstaff works, said Mary. Is it? said Colin. A few yards more, and Mary whispered again. This is where the robin flew over the wall. Is it? cried Colin. Oh, I wish he'd come again. And that, said Mary with solemn delight, pointing under a big lilac bush, is where he perched on the little heap of earth and showed me the key. Then Colin sat up. Where? There, he cried. His eyes were as big as the wolf's in Red Riding Hood, when Red Riding Hood felt called upon to remark on them. Dickon stood still, and the wheeled chair stopped. And this, said Mary, stepping on to the bed close to the ivy, is where I went to talk to him when he chirped at me from the top of the wall. And this is the ivy the wind blew back. She took a hold of the hanging green curtain. Oh, is it? Is it? gasped Colin. And here is the handle. And here is the door. Dickon, push him in, push him in quickly. And Dickon did it with one strong, steady, splendid push. Colin had actually dropped back against his cushions. Even though he gasped with delight, he covered his eyes with his hands and held them there, shutting out everything until they were inside. The chair stopped as if by magic, and the door was closed. Not till then did he take them away, and look round and round and round, as Dickon and Mary had done. And over walls and earth and trees and swinging sprays and tendrils the fair green veil of tender little leaves had crept. And in the grass under the trees and the grey urns in the alcoves and here and there everywhere were touches or splashes of gold and purple, white, the trees were showing pink and snow above his head, and there were fluttering of wings and faint sweet pipes, humming and scents and scents. The sun fell warm upon his face, like a hand with a lovely touch, and in wonder Mary and Dickon stood and stared at him. He looked so strange and different because a pink glow of colour had actually crept all over him. Ivory face and neck and hands and all. I shall get well. I shall get well, he cried out. Mary Dickon, I shall get well. And I shall live forever and ever and ever. One of the strange things about living in the world is that it is only now and then one is quite sure one is going to live forever and ever and ever. 
One knows it sometimes when one gets up at the tender, solemn dawn time and goes out and stands alone and throws one's head far back, looks up and up and watches the pale sky slowly changing, flushing, marvellous unknown things happening until the east almost makes one cry out. One's heart stands still at the strange, unchanging majesty of the rising of the sun. It's been happening every morning for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. One knows it then for a moment or so, and one knows it sometimes, when one stands by oneself in a wood at sunset, and the mysterious, deep, gold stillness, slanting through and under the branches, seems to be saying slowly again and again, something one cannot quite hear, however much one tries. Then sometimes the immense quiet of the dark blue at night, with millions of stars waiting and watching, makes one sure. Sometimes a sound of far-off music makes it true, and sometimes a look in someone's eyes. And it was like that with Colin when he first saw and heard and felt the springtime inside the four high walls of a hidden garden. That afternoon, the whole world seemed to devote itself to being perfect, radiantly beautiful and kind to one boy. Perhaps out of pure heavenly goodness, the spring came and crowned everything it possibly could into that one place. More than once Dickon paused in what he was doing and stood still with a sort of growing wonder in his eyes, shaking his head softly. Eh, hey, it's gridly, he said. I'm twelve, going on thirteen, and there's a lot of afternoons in thirteen years. Seems to me like I never seed one as gridly as this year. Aye, it is a gridly one, said Mary, and she sighed for mere joy. I'll warrant it's the gridlest one as ever was in this world. Does thou think, said Colin, with a dreamy carefulness, as happen it was made like this ere all the purpose for me. My word, cried Mary admiringly, that there is a bit of good Yorkshire. Thou art shapen first rate, that thou art. And delight reigned. They drew the chair under the plum tree, which was snow white with blossoms and musical with bees. It was like a king's canopy of fairy kings. There were flowering cherry trees near and apple trees whose buds were pink and white. And here and there, one had burst open wide. Between the blossoming branches of the canopy, bits of blue sky looked down like wonderful eyes. Mary and Dickon worked a little here and there, and Colin watched them. They brought him things to look at, Buds which were opening, buds which were tight-closed, 
bits of twig whose leaves were just showing green, the feather of a woodpecker which had dropped on the grass, the empty shell of some bird early hatched. Dickon pushed the chair slowly round and round the garden, stopping every other moment to let him look at the wonders springing out of the earth or trailing down from trees. It was like being taken in state round the country of a magic king and queen, shown all the mysterious riches it contained. "'I wonder if we shall see the robin,' said Colin. "'I'll see him often and now after a bit. "'When the egg hatches out, the little chap will be kept so busy "'it'll make his head swim. "'I'll see him flying backward and forward, "'carrying worms nigh as big as himself. "'That much noise going on in nest when he gets there "'as fair flusters him. "'He scarce knows which big mouth drop for his piece in. "'Gaping beaks and squeaks on every side.' Mother says as when she sees the work a robin has to keep them gaping beaks filled. She feels like she was a lady with nothing to do. She says she's seen the little chaps when it seemed like sweat must be dropping off them, though folks can't see it. This made them giggle so delightedly that they were obliged to cover their mouths with their hands, remembering that they must not be heard. Colin had been instructed as to the law of whispers and low voices several days before. He liked the mysteriousness of it, and did his best. But in the midst of excited enjoyment, it is rather difficult never to laugh above a whisper. Every moment of the afternoon was full of new things, and every hour the sunshine grew more golden. The wheeled chair had been drawn back under the canopy, and Dickon had sat down on the grass and had just drawn out his pipe, when Colin saw something he had not had time to notice before. "'That's a very old tree over there, isn't it?' he said. Dickon looked across the grass at the tree, and Mary looked, and there was a brief moment of stillness. "'Yes?' answered Dickon after it, and his low voice had a very gentle sound. Mary gazed at the tree and thought. The branches are quite grey and there's not a single leaf anywhere, Colin went on. It's quite dead, isn't it? I admitted Dickon. But them roses as has climbed all over it will near hide every bit of the dead wood when they're full of leaves and flowers. It won't look dead then. It'll be the prettiest of all. Mary still gazed at the tree and thought. It looks as if a big branch has broken off, said Colin. I wonder how it was done. It's been done many a year, answered Dickon. Hey, with a sudden relieved start and laying his hand on Colin. Look at that, Robin. There he is. He's been foraging for his mate. Colin was almost too late, but he just caught sight of him. The flash of red-breasted bird with something in his beak. He darted through the greenness and into the close-grown corner and was out of sight. Colin leaned back on his cushion again, laughing a little. 
He's taking her tea to her. Perhaps it's five o'clock. I think I'd like some tea myself. And so they were safe. It was magic which sent the robin, said Mary, secretly to Dickon afterward. I know it was magic. For both she and Dickon had been afraid Colin might ask something about the tree, whose branch had broken off ten years ago. They had talked it over together, and Dickon had stood and rubbed his head in a troubled way. We mon look as if it wasn't no different from other trees. We couldn't never tell him how it broke, poor lad. If he says anything about it, we mun. We mun try to look cheerful. Aye, that we mun, had answered Mary. But she had not felt as if she looked cheerful when she gazed at the tree. She wondered, and wondered in those few moments if there was any reality in that other thing Dickon had said. He had gone on rubbing his rust-red hair in a puzzled way, but a nice, comforted look had begun to grow in his blue eyes. Mrs. Craven was a very lovely young lady, he gone on rather hesitating. And mother, she thinks, maybe she's about Misselthwaite many a time looking after Mester Colin, same as all mothers do when they're took out world. They have to come back, thou sees. Happen she's been in garden, and happen it was her set us to work, and to bring him here. Mary had thought he meant something about magic. She was a great believer in magic. Secretly, she quite believed that Dickon worked magic. Of course, good magic, on everything near him, and that was why people liked him so much, and wild creatures knew he was their friend. She wondered, indeed, if it were not possible that his gift had brought the robin just at the right moment when Colin asked that dangerous question. She felt that his magic was working all the afternoon and making Colin look like an entirely different boy. It did not seem possible that he could be the crazy creature who had screamed and beaten and bitten his pillow. Even his ivory whiteness seemed to change. The faint glow of colour, which had shone on his face and neck and hands when he first got inside the garden, really never quite died away. He looked as if he were made of flesh instead of ivory or wax. They saw the robin carry food to his mate two or three times and it was so suggestive of afternoon tea that Colin felt they must have some. "'Go and make one of the men's servants bring some in a basket to the rhododendron walk,' he said, "'and then you and Dickon can bring it here.' It was an agreeable idea, easily carried out, and when the white cloth was spread upon the grass with hot tea and buttered toast and crumpets, a delightfully hungry meal was eaten.' Several birds on domestic errands paused to inquire what was going on, and were led into investigating crumbs with great activity. Nut and shell whisked up trees with pieces of cake. Soot took the entire half of a buttered crumpet into a corner, and pecked and examined and turned it over and made hoarse remarks about it. 
until he decided to swallow it all joyfully in one gulp. The afternoon was dragging towards its mellow hour. The sun was deepening the gold of its lances. The bees were going home. The birds were flying past less often. Dickon and Mary were sitting on the grass. The tea basket was repacked, ready to be taken back to the house. And Colin was lying against his cushions with his heavy locks pushed back from his forehead, his face looking quite a natural colour. I don't want this afternoon to go, he said. But I shall come back tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after, and the day after. You'll get plenty of fresh air, won't you, said Mary. I'm going to get nothing else, he answered. I've seen the spring now, and I'm going to see the summer. I'm going to see everything grow in here. I'm going to grow here myself. That thou will, said Dickon. Us'll have thee walking about here and digging same as other folk afore long. Colin flushed tremendously. Walk, he said. Dig. Shall I? Dickon's glance at him was delicately cautious. Neither he nor Mary had ever asked if anything was the matter with his legs. For sure thou will, he said stoutly. Thou's got legs of thine own, same as other folks. Mary was rather frightened until she heard Colin's answer. Nothing really ails them, he said. But they're so thin and weak, they shake, so that I'm afraid to try to stand on them. Both Mary and Dickon drew a relieved breath. When thou stops being afraid, I'll stand on them. Dickon said with renewed cheer, and I'll stop being afraid in a bit. I shall, said Colin, and he lay still as if he were wondering about things. They were really very quiet for a little while. The sun was dropping lower. It was that hour when everything stills itself, and they really had had a busy and exciting afternoon. Colin looked as if he were resting luxuriously. Even the creatures had ceased moving about and had drawn together and were resting near them. Soot had perched on a low branch and drawn up one leg and dropped the grey film drowsily over his eyes. Mary privately thought he looked as if he might snore in a minute. In the midst of this stillness, it was rather startling when Colin half lifted his head and exclaimed in a loud, suddenly alarmed whisper, "'Who is that man?' Dickon and Mary scrambled to their feet. "'Man!' they both cried in low, quick voices. Colin pointed to the high wall. "'Look!' he whispered excitedly. "'Just look!' Mary and Dickon wheeled about and looked. There was Ben Weatherstaff's indignant face, glaring at them over the wall from the top of a ladder. He actually shook his fist at Mary. "'If I wasn't a back elder and I was a wench of mine,' he cried, 
I'd give thee a hiding. He mounted another step threateningly, as if it were his energetic intention to jump down and deal with her. But as she came toward him, he evidently thought better of it, and stood on the top step of the ladder, shaking his fist down at her. I never thought much of thee, he harangued. I couldn't abide thee the first time I set eyes on thee. A scrawny, buttermilk-faced young besom, always asking questions and poking the nose where it wasn't wanted. I never knowed how they got so thick with me. If it hadn't been for the robin, drat him. Ben Weatherstaff called out Mary, finding her breath. She stood below him and called up to him with a sort of gasp. Ben Weatherstaff, it was the robin who showed me the way. Then it did seem as if Ben really would scramble down on her side of the wall. He was so outraged. Thy young badden, he called down at her, laying thy badness on a robin. Not but what he's impidden, you know, for anything. Him showing thee the way, him, eh, young nout. She could see his next words burst out because he was overpowered by curiosity. However this well did thou get in. It was the robin that showed me the way, she protested. He didn't know he was doing it, but he did. And I can't tell you from here why you're shaking your fist at me. He stopped shaking his fist very suddenly at that very moment. And his jaw actually dropped as he stared over her head at something that he saw coming over the grass toward him. At the first sound of his torrent of words, Colin had been so surprised that he had only sat up and listened as if he were spellbound. But in the midst of it, he had recovered himself and beckoned imperiously to Dickon. Wheel me over there, he commanded. Wheel me quite close and stop right in front of him. And this, if you please, this is what Ben Weatherstaff beheld which made his jaw drop. A wheeled chair with luxurious cushions and robes which came toward him looking rather like some sort of state coach, because a young Raja leaned back in it with royal command in his great black-rimmed eyes, a thin white hand extended haughtily toward him. It stopped right under Ben Weatherstaff's nose. It was really no wonder his mouth dropped open. Do you know who I am? demanded the Raja. How Ben Weatherstaff stared. His red old eyes fixed themselves on what was before him as if he was seeing a ghost. He gazed and gazed and gulped a lump down his throat and did not say a word. Do you know who I am? demanded Colin still more imperiously. Answer. Ben Weatherstaff put his gnarled hand up and passed it over his eyes and over his forehead, and then he did answer in a queer, shaky voice. Who thou art, he said. Aye, that I do, with thy mother's eyes staring at me out of thy face. Lord knows how thou come here, but thou art the poor cripple. Colin forgot that he had ever had a back. His face flushed scarlet, and he sat bolt upright. "'I'm not a cripple,' 
he cried out furiously. I'm not. He's not, cried Mary, almost shouting up the wall in fierce indignation. He's not got a lump as big as a pin. I looked. There was none there, not one. Ben Weatherstaff passed his hand over his forehead again and gazed as if he could never gaze enough. His hand shook and his mouth shook and his voice shook. He was an ignorant old man and a tactless old man and he could only remember the things he had heard. Ah, that hasn't got a crooked back, he said hoarsely. No, shouted Colin. Ah, hasn't got crooked legs, quavered Ben more hoarsely yet. It was too much. The strength with which Colin usually threw into his tantrums rushed through him now in a new way. Never yet had he been accused of crooked legs, even in whispers. The perfectly simple belief in their existence which was revealed by Ben Weatherstaff's voice was more than Raja flesh and blood could endure. His anger and insulted pride made him forget everything but this one moment. It filled him with a power he had never known before, an almost unnatural strength. Come here, he shouted to Dickon. He actually began to tear the coverings off his lower limbs and disentangle himself. Come here this minute. Dickon was by his side in a second. Mary caught her breath in a short gasp and felt herself turn pale. He can do it. He can do it. He can do it. He can. She gabbed over to herself under her breath as fast as she ever could. There was a brief, fierce scramble. The rugs were tossed on the ground. Dickon held Colin's arm. The thin legs were out. The thin feet were on the grass. Colin was standing upright. Upright, as straight as an arrow and looking strangely tall. His head thrown back and his strange eyes flashing lightning. Look at me, he flung up at Ben Weatherstaff. Just look at me, you. Just look at me. He's as straight as I am, cried Dickon. He's as straight as any lad of Yorkshire. What Ben Weatherstaff did, Mary thought queer beyond measure. He choked and gulped. And suddenly tears ran down his weather-wrinkled cheeks as he struck his old hands together. Hey, he burst forth. The lies folk tells. Thou art as thin as a lathe and as white as a wraith. But there's not a knob on thee. Thou'lt make a mon yet. God bless thee. Dickon held Colin's arm strongly, but the boy had not begun to falter. He stood straighter and straighter, and he looked Ben Weatherstaff in the face. I'm your master, he said. When my father is away, and you are to obey me, this is my garden. Don't dare to say a word about it. You get down from that ladder, and go out to the long walk, and Miss Mary will meet you and bring you here. I want to talk to you. We did not want you, but now you will have to be in on the secret. Be quick. 
Ben Weatherstaff's crabbed old face was still wet with that one queer rush of tears. It seemed as if he could not take his eyes from thin, straight Colin standing on his feet with his head thrown back. "'Hey, lad,' he almost whispered. "'Hey, my lad.' And then remembering himself, he suddenly touched his gardener fashion and said, "'Yes, sir. Yes, sir,' and obediently disappeared as he descended the ladder. And that is where we close the book tonight on this episode of Down to Sleep. Thank you for joining me. Until next time, good night.